Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of Labelling the Disabling podcast powered by the Disability Trust. Today I'm joined with our co-host Ed Burt. G'day everybody. And we're also joined by our guest today and I'd like to welcome our guest. Our guest today is Dr Shushana Dreyfus, commonly known as Shushi. Shushi has a child, now a man, with severe intellectual disability and a severe speech impairment. Is that right, Shushi, how I would say that? Communication impairment. Communication impairment. And today Shushi is going to talk to us about her experience and in particular her study and her PhD study regarding semiotics and communication disorder and communicating in general, specifically regarding her son Bodhi, who's now, how old is Bodhi now, Shushi? 24. 24. So welcome Shushi, thank you for joining us today. How did you get into semiotics and the study of communication? So just to explain to everybody what semiotics is, it's really the study of the system of signs and the most basic semiotic system is the traffic light system that everybody knows red means stop, green means go and um, yellow should mean slow down but it mostly means speed up. But it's a, a system, a simple system of signs. So I got into that through my university study. So um, when I was at university I, I was studying linguistics and communication and um, sociology and things like that. So that's how I got into it. Okay, so that is a really good way of explaining it because today I quickly Googled what semiotics were and I think the traffic light system is a really easy way to understand it. It's um, symbols which are communicating what we would normally use language for. Would that be right? Words. Um, and so we're doing it through symbols. So were you studying this before Bodhi was born or before you knew that Bodhi had a severe intellectual disability or did that come after? Uh, no, it came before. So I, I was at uni halfway through my degree when I got pregnant with Bodhi. So I was a mature age student and yeah, I, 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 it had nothing to do with Bodhi. My love of linguistics and language was there already. Okay. And um, then he was born and as his life unfolded and it became um, evident that he wasn't going to speak... And then it came time for me to do a PhD and I actually got my PhD scholarship on a completely different topic. But then I went to a conference that was called Language in the Brain or something like that. And it was an interdisciplinary conference between linguistics and neuroscience. And they were looking at speaking and speech and communication. And all I could think about was why is it that Bodhi couldn't speak? Because from all that they were showing in the neuroscience, he seemed to have all those functions, but he just couldn't produce speech. So he can understand but he can't speak. Um, and so at that point I changed my PhD topic to do a, a study of his nonverbal communication. So I used um, functional linguistic theory to look at how he makes meaning in modes other than speech. Okay. So I read some of the letters and in one of them you talk about Bodhi having the intellectual age of, say, a nine-month-old to a two-year-old. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, probably more two to three I guess, rather than nine months. Okay. And how old was he when you changed your PhD subject over to that? So did you know then that he had a severe intellectual disability? Yeah, he was about seven. Okay. Yeah. And he, what is the disability, I guess, if we're talking about um, Bodhi? What is his disability? So um, 
he 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 presents like a kid with autism in that he looks normal and he's fully physically able, but his disability is actually in his um, genetic makeup in his chromosome. So he's missing a stripe of genes on the long arm of chromosome seven. And in fact, there are lots of things that can um, go wrong with your chromosomes. It's actually surprising anyone's normal when you start to read about it. Um, so yeah, the the missing stripe uh, um, on the long arm of chromosome seven has resulted in severe epilepsy. Severe intellectual disability and a communication impairment. Can I, can I ask um, Shushi what your uh, sort of uh, experience of people with disability was before Bodhi arrived, and you know what that was like? I mean, I think for a lot of people to hear, um, you know, that that experience of having a, a beautiful child, and then you go, "Oh my gosh, there's something here that's not quite right," or that's you know the developmental. Um, milestones aren't being met and um, was there you seem like a really pragmatic sort of person like you know what what was it like can you I'm just you know always curious to understand that that that, that experience mm. okay I'll I'll answer a few parts of that question so mm. what did I know before mm. Bodhi came along uh, just about Zippo um, so my mother's best friend has a daughter with um mild cerebral palsy who also contracted polio so she had a mild intellectual disability she's quite a bit older than me but she was in the background of us growing up but that was all I knew I didn't really know anything about disability Um, my partner in contrast to me um, had been working in the disability sector for a long time so he actually knew a lot more than I did although not specifically about the type of disability that Bodhi has and certainly he didn't have experience with babies and young children he's mostly worked with adults with disability um, so I guess, you know, I'm a pretty relaxed kind of mum. I didn't take babies to the baby health centre and and weigh them every week or anything like that. They, If they were feeding well and growing out of their clothes and happy, that was good enough for me. Um, so when Bodhi came along and he wasn't doing all those things, it was a bit of a shock to the system. But given that I already had another child, I kind of knew that I wasn't particularly doing anything wrong, mm-hmm. whereas I think you doubt yourself more if it's your first time um, mm. being a mother. Um, and because Bodhi looked normal and we had a beautiful home birth with friends and candles and, and nothing was wrong at the birth or anything like that, um, I guess finding out that he had a disability kind of came in stages. Um, I guess I would contrast that with a child that's born with Down syndrome that you know from the moment that it's born that it has some kind of disability. Of course, you don't know how that's going to play out because there's huge variety for people with Down syndrome and and every disability. But in the case of Bodhi, he looked normal and so for all intents and purposes, we had a normal baby and then, yes, he was quite sickly and he did start missing his milestones but I still didn't really recognize anything or realize anything and it was only um when he was about nine months old and I was at preschool picking up my older child that another mum who was an occupational therapist sort of gently said to me uh you probably should go and see someone he's not really doing what he should be doing at this age she was very kind about it and I, I didn't feel confronted and I actually think she was very brave because I know uh, um, the first person who tells you there's something wrong with your child, I think it's such a case of shoot the messenger. (laughs) (laughs) Because you don't want to hear that. As a mum, you you don't want to hear that there's something wrong with your child, do you? You want them to be normal, in inverted commas. Yes. Uh, um, And and so um, we did go through all the tests and nothing was found. And he... 
I guess it it kind of just slowly unfolded as he grew up. And it's funny because we have a video of his first birthday party. And when I look back on that video, I think, how come I couldn't see it? Mm. And particularly there's a contrast in that video because my brother has a daughter who's only a month and a half older Mm. and she's pushing him around in the pram. So she's one and six weeks Mm. and he's one and he looks like a six-month-old baby in the pram and she's in the pushing the trolley stage, (laughs) wheeling him around. I look at her and I look at him and I go, Uh how did I not see that? But I didn't see that because I think you you so want normal that you don't see a lot of stuff. And um, I guess it wasn't really till he started having quite serious epilepsy seizures quite frequently after his first birthday and we went to we had tests for that and we eventually found an epilepsy specialist who basically said something like I hate to be a harbinger of doom and gloom but you've got a really serious epilepsy case on your hands and he was close to retirement and he had only seven other patients in his whole career with that kind of epilepsy and they all had some kind of intellectual disability Mm. so you know it was kind of piece by piece by piece and then it wasn't till he was about mm, two and a half to three and started going to a local preschool with a with an aide we had to get extra support because he just did all these outrageous things like uh when he saw the fish tank he'd plunge his hands in and want to swish the water and the fish and the stones around so um mark my partner his father had to build a lid for the fish tank and the other thing um he liked to do when he was younger he doesn't do it so much anymore was uh flush toilets um and this is a really interesting issue which i'll get to in a minute so he loved to flush toilets and when he got to the preschool there was a room with six little toilets in it and he thought great <laughs> i know what my activity is at preschool i'm gonna flush nice. toilets all day and he would go up and down and flush so my partner had to build little gates um for each end of the toilet yeah. so that he couldn't get in and so there was this constant need to kind of modify the environment and then in that preschool setting you could see him next to lots of other kids his age and really see the contrast there um and you might ask why didn't I notice that before but I was in a funny um um place in life where none of my friends had a baby the year that I had Bodie so I wasn't standing at the park with my good friends and the baby on the hip going what's your baby doing what's my baby doing because no one else had a baby so it was a kind of a weird time Mm. I, w- I want to get back to the flushing toilets issue because I know um, in this podcast you're interested in um, um, in uh, interrogating the idea of disability. So Bodhi uh, decided he loved flushing toilets at quite a young age, like um, around the preschool age, two and a half or something, and we sought advice, should we let him flush the toilet? And the unbelievable difference in the kind of advice we got around toilet flushing was really, really interesting and I think was kind of symbolic for how you might treat, think about what some people with disabilities like to do and a kind of normative viewpoint, you know, whether whether they should do things that are normal and whether it's okay to do things that are not normal. And again, I'm putting normal <coughs> in inverted commas. So, Although, can I just interrupt for one second there? To me, a two-year-old wanting to flush toilets doesn't sound abnormal. Mm. Like it doesn't sound like a two-year-old with disability. Because I remember my two-year-olds just wanting to do something like that or put their hands in the fish tank. You would obviously tell them you can't Mm. do that, but 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 in Bodhi's case... It went on to three and a half and four and a half and five and a half and six and a half. Anyway, go on. And there is that constant tension, isn't there, between, you know... Uh, you hear things a lot like age-appropriate activities and things like that um, where, you know, there can be a genuine desire to assist somebody to fit in and to be with their peer groups of a similar age or stage um, and not to disrupt 
um, social situations and interpersonal interactions. So sometimes behaviours get in the way of that, but take away the behaviour sometimes and that, that, you know, that person is just not in that environment at all anyway. They're not, they're not necessarily participating at some other deeper level. So, you know, there is, I think, I think it is a, a difficult one to wrestle with. We do see that quite a lot with people saying, oh, well, you know, she shouldn't be carrying her, um, you know, cabbage patch doll around the, around the supermarket or something. And it's like, well, you know, this is a, a much-loved toy. It makes her feel um, more secure. Um, and, you know, yes, she's a 47-year-old woman. Or whatever, uh, but, you know, is what, it, what, what is she trying to fit into sort of thing? Yeah, you know? yeah I think that's yeah. a good question. Actually, he wasn't two and a half. He was four and a half because okay. we'd moved. Yeah. So it was yeah. a bit older. That's but, all right, but yeah. tell us then what, so the specialist reactions. Were yeah, so, so there were sort of two schools of thought. One school of thought was, why not let him flush the toilet? It keeps him happy. He's mm. occupied. It's not dangerous. <coughs> um, he, you can see why he'd like it. Press a button, all this water comes down. He'd do a bit of lid banging. There was a bit of percussion happening and seat banging. Um, so that was one thing. And then, and then the other side was, it's unhygienic. It's... Uh, Antisocial, it's inappropriate, you know, um, and a whole pile of things. So uh, we we decided we wouldn't let him do it for a while, and it was it was the first summer that we moved to the house that we still currently live in, and he lay in the corridor, crying, kicking the bathroom door all day, every day, and every half an hour, my partner and I would go. All right, we'll let him in for one flush or two flush. And he'd go in and have a flush and then we'd take him out and lock the door again. And then after a while, I just couldn't stand it any longer. I couldn't stand his distress. I couldn't stand having to negotiate that. So I said to Mark, let's just leave the door open and see what happens. So we turned the tap down under the toilet. We put a big bottle filled with water inside the toilet to minimise the water and we let him flush. And literally he flushed nonstop for two whole weeks. And I had the best two weeks. Yeah. Cup of tea. <laughs> didn't have to run around after you him all the time. Exactly knew what he was up to. Knew what yeah. he was up to. Knew where he was. He had an absolute ball, and it was it was it was delightful actually yeah. to see him really happy and, and harmless and harmless. Yeah, and and I I feel like that was really symbolic in a sense that it it made me realise, you know, you just got to broaden your perspective yeah. and and kind of drop this idea of what normal is and drop an idea of what appropriate is. And if you are really, really serious about a person-centred philosophy to people with disabilities, you will honour what's important to them, providing it doesn't hurt other people and it doesn't hurt them. And, yep. and toilet flushing was, was one of those things. Well, I think it's, a, it's definitely the case in behaviour support that where you, you know, people are trying to control or restrict or you know, get a handle on a behaviour of concern that they're worried about, uh, if you take those controls away, it's quite normal to see an increase for a period of time, and then you know a a, um, uh, a normalisation of that of that behaviour. Like I think it's the same for all of us. With you know, if we've never been able to have an iPhone or a uh, you know piece of equipment like that, uh, if suddenly we get one, then it's like, oh my god, would you just put that thing away? But um, and then it normalises. If if you've never been able to. Uh, you know, any number of things, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, it's Religion, all... Religion, <laughs> veganism. Yeah, veganism, <laughs> exactly. So, um, but yeah. I guess in Bodhi's case, he was also non-verbal in, in that communication sense. Is that correct? Would I mm-hmm. be correct in saying that? Mm-hmm. And so I, I was probably um, a very hypervigilant parent in terms of danger. I have a, a panicky situation all the time as a parent, but um, I got through it and I still panic now, but... 
when you can explain to a child or try to explain to a child who's having um, what we commonly refer to as tantrums, which is just an expression of them not being able to express themselves and tell you what they want, um, when you can explain or when you can have a rational how rational can it be with a four-year-old, but as rational as it can be, you can maybe work through that situation. But in Bodhi's case, he was non-communicative with you in terms of verbal communication. So a part of him communicating might have been flushing that toilet in terms of his happiness or in terms of his activity or how did that work for you in terms of that not being, not being able to communicate verbally with you? Mm, well, I think... Oh, that's such a big question. <laughs> I mean, well, he, well because he, we say just talk to them, or just ignore them, or just that's how we try and deal mm. with our children having a, a, what we know as temper tantrums, whatever they might be called. Um, but is that is that rational for an adult to do that, especially with a child who is nonverbal or unable um, to communicate in the well, regular way? Yeah, I mean that's a hard question. I, you know, I do follow that mantra that all behaviour is communication. I don't mean that flushing toilets is communication. No. I think for him flushing toilets was an enjoyable activity, sensory stimulation, whatever you want to call it. But in terms of behaviours of concern or behaviours that challenge, you know, Bodhi's got this one behaviour where when he's sitting in the front seat of the car, he'll flick the door handle and the door lock and that absolutely freaks people out who don't know him because they think he's trying to um, open the car door when he's in the front seat but he's not that's his move for can we get out when we get there so he flicks the door handle and I say to him yes we can get out when we when you get there and he's happy he stops and if you say don't open the car door and you completely miss the communication move Mm -hmm. he'll keep doing it because you've completely misunderstood him now it just goes to show that you you need to know people who are nonverbal very closely in order to interpret all their moves. But there are also a huge number of communication resources that you can use to help people who can't speak. And in a sense, that became my mission. So when I saw that Bodhi couldn't speak, but he clearly made meaning in lots of different ways. And I made it my mission to help him communicate, to help him communicate all the different meanings that he wanted to communicate without having speech because I saw how hard it was for him and how frustrating it was for him to not be able to make the meaning that he wanted to make with the people that he wanted to speak to. And the funny thing about it is, even though Bodhi's got a severe intellectual disability and even though um, he can't speak, he kind of sort of knows he can't speak. So, for example, one of the things he's really interested in is who people are and meeting people and, and getting to know them and what their names are and things like that so if someone would come to our house who was new he could go up to them and poke them in the chest and go which would be the kind of thing he'd do if he wanted to know their name but sometimes he would come and get me and lead me by the hand back to that person poke them in the chest and go but be looking at me so it was as if he was looking at me to say tell me get them to tell me what their name is so he knew that they couldn't understand him and that I could understand him. So I guess the the in my PhD, I mapped all those resources he uses to make meaning, and then I looked at all the meanings that he can make with those resources, and then we've been trying to, you know, supplement his meaning-making resources with all kinds of visual communication tools um, to help him say what he needs to say. So by this stage... You knew that Bodhi had an intellectual disability and that he couldn't communicate verbally mm. using words, as we mm. would know. 
what was Bodie up to? Because I know that by that stage you had another child. So you had an older child and a younger child. And you Bodie were doing your PhD. Yeah. Was Bodie going to school? Was he going to daycare? Was Because how old was he? Four, five, six? I started my PhD when he was about seven. So he went to a normal preschool with a, with a funded aid till he was about five and then he started at Parramatta School here in Wollongong and he went to Parramatta School from age five till 18. Okay. And... How familiar were the teachers with forms of nonverbal communication, like the ones that you studied? Well, I, I've I've got to say that it was the school and the speech pathologist who worked at the school and the deputy who was at the school who got me onto nonverbal communication um, means of communicating, which are commonly called augmented and alternative communication or augmentative and alternative communication. So it was pretty obvious that Bodhi needed more um, communication resources. And so um, they suggested to me to go on this um, training course that the Autism Association was putting on. They'd brought out an um, American or Canadian researcher who'd done all this research into um, the interconnection between challenging behaviour and communication. She'd gone into group homes and collected all this lovely data on people and their behaviour and then um, did communication interventions and then was able to show how their behaviour either completely disappeared or reduced markedly when they had appropriate a means of communication. So it was really powerful to see that because Bodhi's behaviour at the age of five or six was totally out of control. He, he just didn't know how to behave in the world. He used to, for example, walk through our dining room and tip all the dining room chairs over so they banged. They eventually all broke, um, flushing toilets incessantly, um, you know, just shrieking, pulling, breaking everything. He, he'd want to play with things and then he'd break them and then he didn't understand that they were broken and just... He just didn't know how to operate in the world. He didn't know how to communicate. It was really full on. And and his toilet flushing was really interesting because his classroom in, in his school was quite far away from the library or the, or the other things like the pool or the sensory room. And it would take them half an hour to walk there because he'd want to flush every single toilet that they passed throughout the whole school along the way. Um, and he would just lie down and have a, have a big meltdown. If he wasn't able to. Yeah, because he wasn't allowed to flush the toilets and um, he used to do things like um, pull people's hair to say hello to them or scratch them on the arm to say hello. He just really um, was showing that he needed some better ways of communicating because in those kind of school environments, even with the best of intentions, he was actually hurting people because he was trying to communicate. So his teacher ended up having to wear like um, sort of these sleeves, these thick rubber sleeves, almost like a wetsuit from her wrist to her elbow because when he got upset, he'd grab her arm and dig his fingernails in. It didn't matter how short I cut his fingernails when he got frustrated. And little kids of that age Mm. do get frustrated. He would just gouge people. So, um, you know, we've... I I have worked really hard with him and with speech pathologists to try and get him communication resources. But he's a really complex communicator and so, in fact, the best communication resource for him is a good communication partner. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because this is – we're talking – sorry, Ed. We're talking late 90s, I'd I'd be assuming, if my timeline's correct, because he's 24 now. He he was born in um, – 95. 95. So So late 90s, before the technology that we have today. So certainly before iPads. Yep. um, And, yeah, they were much more analogue, the the kind of technologies. And, I mean, he mostly still uses um, laminated picture Mm. cards, which he carries on a key ring 
on a string from his belt. So he's got a stack of about 30 cards that are all kind of topic cards that he's been using for years and years and years. And as his life has changed, we've added more topics to the topic cards. But the topic cards, they can tell you what he wants to talk about, but they can't tell you what he wants to say about those things. So if he points to the picture of a drink, for example, is he asking for a drink? Is he talking about drinks? Is he telling you a story about a drink he had in the past? Like you just don't know. So we're trying to introduce a sheet that allows him to point to, I want to tell you something, I want to ask you something, I want to go somewhere. So some some more pragmatic functions in addition to his topic cards. But I can't tell you how hard it is to implement that kind of um, communication resource because if you think about how normal children learn to speak, from the moment they're conceived and from the moment they're born, people are talking all around them, talking to them, um, talking amongst themselves. So they are fully, fully immersed in a speaking environment. And we don't actually have to sit there and say to a child, okay, if you want to talk about yourself, you can use three terms. You can use I, me or myself and you use it. We don't say that, do we? They just pick it up in context of use by hearing us do it. And of course, they make mistakes along the way. Like everybody will have heard a little child say, I run really fast. So you know that the child understands that they need to make a past tense verb. So they put ED on the end, which is fine in most cases, but not fine in irregular cases, but they're getting there. But we don't often correct them, they pick it up along the way. So if you think about children like Bodhi, who not only have um, learning difficulties because of their intellectual disability, nobody is using the communication system that they need to use Mm. around them. So how are they expected to learn it? So um, I think this is something that is not well understood in the NDIS context, which is if you want to um, provide someone with communication resources and you want them to use it, everyone has to use it. Mm. So that means you have to train everybody how to use their resource and everybody has to be committed to doing that and that is a really difficult task. Yeah, I, I, it's something I refer to as that sort of disability double whammy. You know, you, you not only have, might have a you know, cognitive impairment around understanding information or, or expressing information but people aren't treating you with the same rules <laughs> as everybody else yep. um, so you're doubly disadvantaged and I think the other thing that comes through with what you're saying, Shushi, is the time commitment that that must be given to people with uh, intellectual disability and different forms of communication. Uh, because everything you're saying about Bodhi is he is he is a communicator of one, like he's the only uh, one of his kind. You know, in and that's that's incredibly valuable. You know, like really, he can teach us so much. And I'm interested in what your um, PhD research has like the broader implications of um, applying a framework that looks at one one unique communicator, and then the the learnings that we can take for that from that for all of our uh, nonverbal semiotic. Now I've got that great, uh, and and Carol's going to be gesturing at the table to to shush. Um, but yeah, what we can learn from that uh, research and what how we can apply that to our husbands and wives and and other and children and you know because I think there's so much in that 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 Bodhi has been a real teacher uh, I think from everything you've you've described uh, and I think um, has great benefit in terms of our understanding communication both verbal and non Uh, is that is that uh, yeah because that was certainly something I'm struck with about your your research and (laughs) I think it has broader implications yeah totally I think um 
one of the key things it's taught me is that we need to think about um, communication instances. So when people communicate, we need to think about them as making a move and we need to ask ourselves, what move are they making here? So, for example, if... Uh, I, I use this one with my class today at uni. If, um, if a mother says to a kid, mm. uh, Tommy, is that your shirt on the floor? She's not really asking him a question, is that shirt on the floor? She knows and he knows that it's his shirt on the floor. What she's asking him is to pick the shirt up off the floor, but she's doing it in a polite form, right? And so <laughs> if, you, if you said, what is she saying? She's, you know, she's making a question, is that your shirt on the floor? But the move that she's making is actually really a command to pick the shirt up off the floor. So I think that that works really well when you think about um, not just um, people like Bodhi, everybody, like you say, mm our husbands, our wives, our friends, our family, you know, what move are they making when they're doing yeah. this communication yeah. act? Yeah. Because it's often not just in the words, it's often beneath the words. Um, and, and you know, that's the way I think about Bodhi's communication and it, it, I think about what move is he making and I think that's really important in the kind of challenging behaviour context yeah. because, um, you know, they people might say, oh, you know, this person with... Um, intellectual discipline challenging behaviour did this and they did that and they did this and they did that and they're not actually asking what function is this performing what move are they trying to make by doing this thing so you you have to kind of read the subtext you have to read beneath and think about the communicative function and the kind of move that they're trying to make and yes Bodhi's communication really taught me that and I think you're right it's applicable to all of us not just to people with disabilities what move are they trying to make I really I, I re that really resonates mm. with me. And I think, you know, when you talked about um, Bodhi approaching, he knew, you know, he showed incredible um, insight into, you know, those that could, uh, that he could communicate well with and those that he knew he would, because they were new people, he knew if he didn't know them, they just wouldn't know. Yeah. He, he made no um, sort of assumptions about new people that they might somehow know Bodhi's uh, interaction style or communication. He, he absolutely knew so I think, again, I've, I always wrestle with this idea of intellectual disability and what, what it is, um, but it's certainly a, a different form of processing information. Um, but do you have, have thoughts about that? Because evidently Bodhi is, um, again, highly intelligent in his, own, in his own way and he has specialist knowledge around certain areas. I think, you know, we often see that with people with intellectual disability, that there's um, real focus uh, on particular topics of interest. Um, you know, I know people who know all of the Elvis back catalogue or um, every, you know, anyway, all sorts of uh, arcane knowledge and information that's, that, that shows uh, when passion particularly is, is uh, unlocked like that, you can really get, I wonder if Odie, you know, could have taken on a, or could take on a, uh, an apprenticeship as a plumber or something like that. Well, <laughs> oh. uh, you know, someone made a podcast about him and his love of escalators. So uh -huh. there's this yeah. um, woman in Melbourne who was making podcasts about escalators, the history of escalators, escalator accidents, all kinds of weird things, and, yeah. and she ended up making a, a podcast about Bodhi and because his uh, passion is riding escalators. And um, for those who live in Wollongong, there are actually over 30 escalators in the Wollongong central city area um i know them all very intimately <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you do having been there many times yeah. um so yeah I, yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean you i think if you're 
truly going to take a person-centred approach to not just people with disabilities but to ourselves really. I mean, we take a person-centred approach with ourselves, yes. don't we? Mm. we? We allow ourselves to self-determine, to have hobbies, to follow whatever we like. I mean, who says that, you know, putting stamps in a book and cataloguing them is any more valuable than riding up and down escalators or whatever. So I think if we're to truly take a person-centred approach, we will allow people to determine what it is that interests them without being judgmental. So another really important thing that came out of my thesis, I think, was the purposes for which we use communication. So a lot of people think we use communication primarily or language primarily for sharing information. But actually what my research um, into Bodhi's communication showed was that he, and actually us, we know this from um, child and parent language studies, um, primarily uses communication to make a bond with people, to form a social bond and to connect to people. Um, And if you read a lot of the communication moves of people like Bodhi as a bonding move, so, you know, Think about Bodhi walking down the school corridor and grabbing someone's hair. And you can either treat that as he's a naughty boy doing challenging behaviour and we're going to punish him and we have to teach him how to stop that. Or you can treat that as he actually doesn't know how to say hello to this person who's walking past him. And if we provide him with a better option of saying hello, he might stop pulling her hair because he's going to get his communication need met by using a resource or whatever other thing you're going to use. So... um, You know, a lot of the stuff we do with communication is bonding. So you think about you get to work on Monday morning and you say to your work colleagues, oh, did you have a good weekend? What did you do on the weekend? It doesn't really matter what they did. It's not really so much about sharing information. This is how we build the community of the workplaces to talk about what we did on the weekend. So understanding how a nonverbal person bonds is really important because humans are social beings, regardless of whether we've got a disability or not, regardless of what impairments we have or not, we all primarily want to bond with some people, not others. Now, people, some people argue that people with autism, which Buddy doesn't have, by the way, um, don't need social bonding the way other people do, but they are still bonded often with their families and their primary carers and the people that they um, love and care about. Um, they might just do it in different ways. So what Bodhi showed me was that we can read lots of different communication moves that we wouldn't have otherwise understood as being interpersonal and being about the social and being about making social bonds with each other. And if we get that, then that's really important because that's the function of that move is to create a bond. I wanted to ask you, and it's related to that uh, idea of bonding, um, because I do see as well with parents who um, their child doesn't show the... Uh, the love for them in the way that they expect or think they should be showing uh, love for them like the other child in, you know in that other family over there or their other sibling uh, and then you know you use the autism example and can be quite distressing for the parent to think well you know he or she just does not show any emotion towards me I, I, I feel no you know and that can be really quite damaging if the parent is not perhaps open to other forms of communication of that love and because I think you're quite right Shushi it's it's always there can be expressed in different ways but hard to hard to gauge and sometimes I think people need an external party to come in and go okay well you know when when you're away they're having a terrible time or they're very distressed obviously missing you or they uh, they show their their comfort and and 
at ease around you, um, they look for you, all of those things that are uh, symbolic of, of love and connection and bonding. Um, and it sort of relates to, um, I was thinking about what you were talking about earlier, um, you seem like a very pragmatic sort of person. Uh, you know, for a lot of parents um, that we're seeing these days, and I think it's probably always been the case, that there's different levels where people, some people are seeing uh, disability in everything. They'll be seeing, oh God, my gosh, my child's not normal. They're not at the same level and as the other children in the class, or um, which they may or may not be right about, but um, there's almost like hypervigilance there. Um, whereas it seems, seems I might be wrong, but uh, that you seem to be a bit more um, tolerant or, or exploratory uh, in your understanding of development and uh, you know, can you tell us, is that, is that the way you, is, do you think you are different to other parents? Um, and do you, have you seen that in other parents in, with, with children with disabilities? Have you helped other parents around, around those sort of things? It's a really interesting question. And I guess there's a few things to say to that. So one is I, I'm a bit of an unusual person myself. So I think my tolerance for unusualness and difference <laughs> is greater. So I, I've often not done things the way other people do them or I've, I've done them in different ways. Um, and so I, I've kind of grown up with an awareness of being slightly different. So I think that's helpful in the first instance. In the second instance, education is invaluable. So my, my understanding of semiotic theory and linguistic theory is really helpful here because in semiotics and, and my corner of linguistics, which is actually called systemic functional linguistics, we often look at things as a, a scale from black to white with lots of shades of grey in between and we don't look at things as a binary and a binary is a choice of either this or that. So in the case of disability or, or impairment, you look, can look at someone as either having a disability or not having a disability, so normal or not normal and I don't think that's particularly helpful. I think it's much better to look at it as a grayscale. So, and I don't even know what the polar ends are. <laughs> but in a sense, we're all in this grey mess in there, aren't we? So, like, I need glasses to read, so I've got some kind of mild vision impairment. But, I, you know, that wouldn't be considered in the way disability is considered. But I like to consider it like that. I like to think that we're all on a spectrum of difference. And, and we're all in this mix together, and that's what makes the, for the rich tapestry of life is all the ways we're all different and of course, there are lots of ways that we're similar as well, and, and that is our common humanity. So, yeah, I do have a big perspective, and and I do. Um, I mean, it it was very difficult being a parent of Bodhi. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't an easy life because he threw challenges our way that we hadn't come upon before, and he wasn't a very good sleeper. And there, you know, there were lots of challenges. I don't want to play down how hard it is. And in fact, some of my research actually talks to families who have a family member with intellectual disability and challenging behaviour. And these families typically have quite stressful lives. But at the same time, you know, we, we need to support those families to support their children. Yep. It's a big gig and it's pretty hard to do on your own. As for helping others, you know, what I have found so often with families who have a child with a disability and particularly an intellectual disability is they're often on their own. They're these little islands in the sea struggling on alone, trying to get the next meal on the table, trying to keep body and soul together, trying to look after their other children if there are any and their marriage if they have one. And, you know, it, it bringing up a family is a huge load anyway and probably for most of us the busiest time of our lives is raising children and working, which most of us are doing. And then if you add the complexities of disability into the mix, that makes a really high-pressure situation. Yep. And I think families are often struggling on alone. So it, it's not that easy to... 
um, link up with people because you're not down at the park with mm. your kid with a disability on your hip once they get ambulant or yep. if they're going to get ambulant or whatever, like you are with, your, with you know typically developing children where mums are all down the park or dads are down at the park and they're all doing things together. Because your child is usually has quite idiosyncratic needs, you're off, you know, doing those things, looking after them, whatever. So I I wish I could help families more. I guess I'm trying to do it through research and and other things like trying to get all abilities playgrounds built and yeah. you know. Yeah. How how do you think we can help families more? I mean, I think there's this at the moment we've got this thing called the NDIS that's come into play, but there does seem to be this broader. Uh, need for um, support to families you know when if you have a child diagnosed with disability then there's all of those practical supports for early intervention therapy and etc etc for for those children but I think what we know about disability is that once you tick that box then you've got extensive vulnerabilities that flow on from that in terms of like you said uh, relationship breakdown, parents having to stay home from work to, because they need to homeschool, or they feel they, you know, they they you know they can't, there's extensive absences from school or illness. Uh, all of those things, even even things like practical things like uh, larger washing machines that might cost two or three times the price, but you need to do a lot of laundry. All of those little things add up to just putting families under such pressure and then I think when we've got arguments between government departments over who you know who should be footing this bill for that but at the same time a family implodes and we we it it costs the ends of the earth for that child for the parents and for the broader community I mean it just seems like a crazy thing when we when we are you know we end up arguing over what really are it's it's we need to invest in families is what I'm saying. We shouldn't be arguing over where that's coming from. And 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 a disability is, is a genuine, uh, really ups the ante in terms of investment requirements. So uh, if we want to see families together, I think we can do better. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that and where that should be coming from? I do. Um, I have yeah. two things I wanted to say to that. And one is if you truly want to support people with disabilities, you have to support the people that care for them. Mm. Mm. which for the most part is families. Yep. And you, you, you cannot imagine that you can support a person with a disability alone without mm. supporting the networks around them. I mean, yeah. that's just nonsense. Yeah. So that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is I mentioned before that I have done some research talking to families who have a family member with intellectual disability who uses challenging behaviour. In amongst those families, there was a bunch of families and this bunch of families were the only families that weren't isolated and the reason they weren't isolated was because they were part of a peer support program. So this this was a bunch of families in Western Australia who had been supported through a, an NGO organisation that had received some government funding to set up a peer support network. And they had one person coordinate it. Well, she was a gem as well. It helps to have mm. a great person who coordinates. But the possibilities for supporting this peer support network were face-to-face meetings, uh, once or twice a year, weekend away, Facebook telephone, whatever method you could engage with was available to you. And what the family said who participated to more or less degree, so some families said, oh, I only ever use the Facebook page or someone else said, oh, I I often use the phone and the other said I do the face-to-face. They did whatever they could um, was that they didn't feel alone. Mm. And and a lot of them said things like, oh, it saved my life. I I know that when so-and-so is doing X, I can just go on Facebook and ask – has anyone got any ideas about, you know, 
someone say they're biting chunks of skin out of their arm, whatever mm. horrible thing the person might be doing to themselves or whatever, there was someone to ask. There was someone a bit further down the track. And so they trained the families to be peer supports for each other. So there was training involved and there was a lot of support and a lot of coordination, but those families stood out because they weren't alone. Which is what we get in regular child-raising instances, like you talked about meeting the other mums down at the park or going to the baby health clinic and meeting other parents. Standing at the school gate. Yeah, it doesn't need to be coordinated, but for people with disability or for people experiencing these uh, situations which aren't your regular trajectory through child-raising, they do need an organised, valuable system like you've mentioned in order to talk about those things because our world is very judgmental and it is extremely binary. And so if I was to tell a mum down at the park that my child was biting chunks out of their arm, the likelihood that they would engage with me again is probably low. <laughs> and, and you know, so those organised groups are really important and people tend to see them as an additional wraparound service, but they don't seem to see it as that's what everyone else has. That is what everybody else has with children without disability. They're engaging through mothers' groups, Facebook pages, telephone calls down at the school gate, but people with disability don't have the same access. And this speaks to the whole informal-formal support network. So the NDIS is big on people having informal supports, but I think what we've hit upon here is that they need to be formalised for for families who have a family member with disability. Absolutely. Yeah, it'd be, certainly be worth talking further about that. If that was a WA model, what we could do, you know, think of doing here in, in the Illawarra. And, and you touched on your fantastic idea around an accessible access all areas uh, play equipment exercise. Did you want to just touch on that? Because I think that's a clever way of bringing people together. Yeah, so this idea happened for me at the beginning of this year when I was looking at my son's group home Facebook page and um, he lives with three other young men with disability. They're all ambulant. They can all walk and everything. Um, three of them have autism. They've all got severe intellectual disability and they're all functionally nonverbal. And um, they get taken to parks and playgrounds a lot and, and the workers post pictures of them on Facebook. And I was looking at these pictures of them on Facebook and they're all big young men, <laughs> some of them over six foot, playing on playground equipment that's built for naught to 12-year-olds and it really struck me that they need a playground that's fit for size. Mm-hmm. And it's not just fit for size. Something else struck me at the time, which was I stopped taking Bodie to playgrounds probably when he was about 14 because he is already the size of a young man and people were there with their toddlers. And he he was unpredictable and a threat to them. And I found that too painful as a mum. I found the fact that people pulled their little toddlers off the equipment if he was on it too painful I felt like he was impinging on them I felt they were impinging on me I just couldn't bear that clash of need so I stopped taking him to playgrounds and just went to the escalators instead but did you have to physically avoid those playgrounds physically avoid those playgrounds but I know that um, his day program and the group home they go to lots of playgrounds but they go to the out of the way ones they don't go to the new whiz bang state-of-the-art ones like the one at um, Stuart Park in North Wollongong or the one at Thrill that I know costs close to a million bucks to build and they're fabulous playgrounds but everybody goes there yeah. so it's not very appropriate to take you know fully grown young men to those playgrounds so I came up with this idea and I've been lobbying very hard and it looks like we will get one of those playgrounds in the next few years in the Illawarra so because I do feel like people with intellectual disability are the forgotten people you know physical disability in some senses is taken care of although people with physical disability will tell you it isn't 
and I, in that all buildings now have to have wheelchair ramps and we are trying to make sure that buildings are physically accessible. But what does it mean for a place to be intellectually accessible for people who, who are different in intellectual disability rather than physical disability? So that was the idea of the playground. And, and I think what I love most about it is, firstly, that it might be going to happen. It looks like it's going to happen. But secondly, that everybody got it from the federal members to the state members to the council Everybody wow. got that it, that it's a really great idea and that we could do something really fantastic here and that it would possibly be not just a flagship for the Illawarra. There is no playground like that in the Illawarra. There are new playgrounds and councils into building great playgrounds, but there's not one that is really dedicated in its outset to young adults with intellectual disability. So the fact that everyone kind of gets it and thinks it's a great idea is, I think, really encouraging. How do you think we could get the general public to get it? So you've spoken to, like you said, uh, federal, state, local government. Did you ever have a parent when you were at that playground when Bodie was 14 actually ask any questions respectfully, like how can my toddler interact with your 14-year-old? How can So how can we get the general public to get that? Because I get it. When you said that um, the child was walking down the corridor and pulled the other child's hair to get their attention. When I speak to my kids, and it might be my own personal experience of disability that's made me more non-binary than others, but I sort of explain to them, people don't just pull hair for the sake of pulling hair. When a child pulls another person's hair or when a child pushes another child over or when a child swears at as an, an another child or bullies another child, there's an underlying situation going on there. Let's talk about what could be happening. So how could we get people to understand that People have very specific ideas about accessible parking, accessible toilets, the accessible wheelchair swing at Stewart Park. How could we get people to understand that this playground is for everybody, that it is all-inclusive and the reason it was built wasn't to exclude others but was to include everybody? Well, I think that will happen as a matter of course. The more we do it, the more we make public places more accessible and the more, more we promote that then I think it will happen. I mean, I think if you consider now the attitude to wheelchair ramps compared to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, they're there. So they become part of who we are, part of our culture and part, part of our lifestyle and our built environment. So I'm hoping that it will be the same. You know, we, we if we have more of these things, it means they're present in our lives. So I think you can talk about it, but we actually have to do stuff yeah. like build a playground. Yeah. yeah. Should just mention as well that we did want to have Bodhi with us here in the studio, but we thought it was going to be a little, a little too much. Uh, but we will endeavour to get some of his uh, vocalisations and things to include in this podcast. So that should be pretty cool. So thanks for that, Shushi. Thank you so um, much, um, Shushi. That's really one explained, I guess, simply what semiotics are and um, all of the signs that we see around us. And I'm sure that most of us will probably be paying more close attention to those signs, uh, not only in our general environment, but when communicating with others. The thing that I draw mostly from that is that we, like Ed just said, someone with an intellectual disability, we may not consider them as intellectually as as others, um, but there is a real valuable lesson to be learnt here. Here is a young man now who was born with a severe intellectual disability who was unable to communicate verbally, yet has given us so much 
knowledge through your PhD and through your work and through your study and through your perseverance uh, into another way of communicating and into another way of accessing the world, which will, as Ed said earlier and you've um, confirmed as well, not only be valuable for Bodhi but be valuable for all of us. And that's something that we do need to really think about when we are talking about disability and opening our minds up to challenging our perspective on disability. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks. Thank you.